Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. In this episode, we highlight some of this year's changes to the AASM Manual for the Scoring of Sleep and Associated Events. Our correspondent, Dr. Robert Verona, talks with members of the Scoring Manual Committee about the rationale behind some of this year's Scoring Manual updates. I am Dr. Robert Verona, a member of the AASM's Sleep Technologists and Respiratory Therapists Education Committee. Today, we're going to learn more about recent changes to the AASM Manual for the Scoring of Sleep and Associated Events. The Scoring Manual is an indispensable tool for the sleep team, and it was recently reviewed and updated in January 2020. All AASM-accredited sleep facilities are required to have implemented the rules in version 2.6 by July 1. To help us understand those changes, I'm very pleased to welcome two guests who are involved in the scoring manual review and updates. Dr. Stuart Kwan is the current chair of the scoring manual committee, and Dr. Richard Berry is the past chair, and currently he serves the committee as a consultant. Drs. Kwan and Berry were instrumental in the latest updates to the scoring manual to ensure it's reflective of the latest research and developments, while also aligned with AASM publications and policies. So welcome, Uh, thank you both for joining us today. So let's go ahead and get started, please. Um, I wanted to ask about several questions that that, uh, were brought up when I discussed uh, these changes uh, with two very experienced and excellent sleep technologists. One of the first questions that was uh, asked was, why the committee determined that REM without atonia should only be an optional recommendation and not more strongly recommended by the committee? Uh, At least on the surface, it seemed like such a delineation of REM without atonia should be part of our reports in all cases. But we were very interested in what uh, the committee thought the rationale was for not being more forceful in that recommendation, please. Well, thank you for uh, offering us the opportunity to provide some information regarding our considerations involved in developing new scoring manual rules. With respect to REM sleep without atonia, the recommendations basically reflect those that have been put forth by the SINBAR group in Europe, who have a great interest in looking at REM sleep behavior disorder and REM sleep without atonia. And these recommendations, we felt, although looked valid, they weren't really widely disseminated among the sleep community, especially in North America. So we had some reservations about requiring laboratories to to follow them. A lot of times the the first step in making new rules is to put them out as recommended to get feedback on them before making them permanent guidance. The second thing is that there is actually still some controversy regarding uh, what is considered normal and abnormal as far as calculating indices uh, using these rules. And it kind of depends a little bit on what type of leads you're you're reporting when you're in the polysomnogram. Uh, I don't know if Dr. Berry would like to add anything to that or not? 
Another consideration is um, uh, there's currently no software that automatically assists in scoring rental auditorium. And there's always the question about uh, increased burden on uh, the person scoring studies. And uh, so we also considered that. Um, and, uh, again, if an individual lab feels that it's important, they, they, they can always do it, you know, especially if their physician directly feels it's important. In other words, they can, uh, they can do additional things than the score manual recommends. I mean, it's acceptable or option, the option. And I think that's a, uh something that Dr. Berry just also mentioned at the very end about individual labs being able to go beyond if they wish is, is, is key. Um, but, but thank you very much for that, that explanation. And, and I'm sure a lot of sleep technologists out there will be appreciative that uh, the committee uh, was thoughtful in, in trying to balance the need for excellent uh, study scoring with not overwhelming them uh, with, with workload. Uh, our next question, uh, and maybe there was some confusion on this, and it'll be great to have Drs. Kwan and Barry clarify matters. We wondered uh, why the committee elected not to specify impedances for ECG. And there was a question in our mind about whether impedances uh, for uh, EMG of the legs were also not specified. One of the concerns was by not doing so, we might uh, limit the push, if you will, for really careful attention to detail. So uh, perhaps some clarification, corrections there would be in order. Well, I think that uh, with respect to overall our philosophy and the scoring manual, we don't like to put out uh, recommendations or rules where there are significant, where there aren't significant issues, usually, um, because just to put out a rule to make, put out a rule doesn't, isn't necessarily a good practice. For ECGs, it's been basically my impression, and I believe others as well, that having, measuring impedances or specifying an impedance actually, there is actually little problem with the quality of recordings in ECGs. Uh, you know, that might be different if you're doing a research recording, but uh, in general, for most clinical practice, it doesn't seem to be an issue. With respect to leg movements, uh, that is a slightly different story. It turns out that we probably will be, or we have made a decision in the next version of the scoring manual to actually specify impedances for legs. Um, I believe uh, we'll have to look it up, but it's right not on the tip of my tongue, but I believe that we said it's going to be uh, 10K. But uh, I don't know, Rich, do you have anything else to say? Yeah, that, uh, that's my recollection as well. So um, I would just like to echo everything Dr. Kwan said. I think that's a, that, you know, that's a really uh, excellent point about not uh, looking to put in uh, recommendations where they're really – not necessary. Uh, our next question for our uh, colleagues on the committee uh, came from the perception of a couple of my uh, colleagues uh, in sleep technology who've been scoring, not for years, but in, in, a, in a couple of cases for decades, who, and they just have this perception that 
over time, the rules have been such that REM sleep seems to be more split up. There's more of a, a, a tendency now with the scoring rules to go from REM, non-REM, as opposed to keeping folks in REM sleep. And one technologist actually made the very interesting point that she would tend to split REM, non-REM, REM, uh, and her supervising physician was saying, why are you doing this? Just keep them in REM. So uh, I think it's very interesting to hear what doctors Quan and Barry have to say about their perception. Is that correct, incorrect? Their thoughts on this? So I'm going to let Rich answer this first. Okay, so Dr. Quan and I did review the rules with this uh, question in mind, and um, we don't believe that the rules have changed substantially as far as taking someone out of room since 2007, which is the first scoring that uh, it is. And, and furthermore, uh, for example, if anything, uh, it's uh, a tendency to keep people in REM, for example, uh, an arousal doesn't necessarily mean the end of REM. Uh, if the person goes back to having a low tone and an EEG consistent with REM, and there's no uh, slow eye movements, uh, that's very different than what happens when an arousal interrupts non-REM sleep. So in our view, uh, this does uh, help keep a person in REM. Uh, the other thing is, is uh, when there's K-complexes that interrupt, interrupt REM, uh, this manual actually um, usually allows to keep the, the uh, person in REM. In other words, if there's an isolated complex and REM on either side, uh, the rules say keep them in REM. So we, we do not actually understand why there's a perception that, we're, um, that the rules are set up to take someone out of REM. Dr. Kwan, do you have any ambitions? Yeah, I, I would. I agree with that, and I would just say that if the techs are scoring and they find that people's REM is interrupted by other sleep stages, that this is a function of what's going on with the patient and not a function of the scoring rules. Okay, thank you very much, and I, and I, I think that's illuminating information. We'll hear more from Drs. Kwan and Barry after the short break. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Prepare for post-COVID-19 operations, optimize your sleep facility, and learn accreditation tips at the ASM Practice Management course. This one-day online course is more affordable than ever. Earn up to seven and a half hours of continuing education and get a jumpstart on 2021 with easy-to-implement skills taught by sleep experts. Register today at aasm.org slash PMC. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. Let's return to our conversation about changes to the AASM scoring manual with our correspondent, Dr. Robert Verona. The, the next question we want to talk about, and it wasn't so much a question, but in some ways applauded, uh, was that uh, the experienced sleep technologists uh, with whom I reviewed matters, uh, were happy that intercostals were coming to the fore. Uh, but they did wonder, uh, because a lot of sleep laboratories don't use intercostals, whether this podcast might be uh, a nice opportunity uh, for Drs. Kwan and Barry to 
succinctly talk about uh, intercostal use, placement, impedances, the, the, some of the pros and cons that might face a lab uh, in their use? So intercostals are useful in trying to help people determine whether a respiratory event is central or obstructive. And so in my previous experience, when you get good intercostal signals, this can be helpful in scoring events. The problem with the intercostals is that there is no consensus on where actually to monitor them from, where to place the leads. And then in addition, um, they're not always easy to place so that you get a decent signal. This is especially true if a person is obese, which many of our patients are. Um, the scoring manual does have some uh, examples of where intercostals uh, can be placed, but again, this is, these are garnered from individual studies there and publications, and there is no consensus about what works best. Um, I believe Dr. Barry may have some other tidbits to add to, add to the about intercostals. Well, again, this was a, in other words, this is an introduction to the scoring manual, um, and uh, it showed several different placements because it's got one set. There's no standard; it can vary um, between um, in patients what works. And uh, so, again, the idea is is to introduce this concept. Uh, or the, the possibility of using these, but not making them uh, absolutely as essential so that the lab feels like they have to do it. Um, so that, that's in the future. If there's a you know more information about placement, uh, you know that could be reconsidered. Thank you. Uh, the last uh, discussion uh, point or uh, query had to do with. The recent decision to specifically refer to uh, polyvinylidene or PVDF belts, and and uh, what some of the recent uh, research was, both in uh, children and adults, that that sort of tipped the scale where uh, the committee said, you know what, we're going to specifically refer now to these PVDF belts uh, uh, for those who look at this version 2.6. I'm gonna. Uh, the initial response to this one to Dr. Berry. Well, um, in fact, there were some publications on PBDF belts uh, in adults and children. So for that reason, it was added as acceptable sensory. Um, acceptable rather than recommended is if there's still not the same amount of evidence as for uh, RIP belts. Yeah, I'd just like to emphasize that um, when we put something in the scoring manual, in almost every case, I would say almost every case, we like to have evidence supporting our recommendation that there is some study or studies that would indicate that we should do this. And uh, since these belts were out there for clinical use and people were inquiring as to whether they were accurate or not, and whether they were acceptable for use, uh, the committee decided that it was important to uh, actually mention them in the manual. And they're not recommended, they're acceptable, meaning that you can use them. 
Uh, you know, and I think a couple of points really shine through for me through this whole discussion with you, Dr. Kwan and Dr. Barry. One, it's clear to me that the committee really does carefully try and balance the necessity of obtaining clean, instructive studies, but not uh, causing an overwhelming or untenable workload for the sleep technologists. And I, I think that's very, very clear from listening to both of your discussions today. The other thing that uh, has been made clear is that individuals' sleep laboratories or sleep disorder centers have every opportunity to go beyond, above and beyond some of these uh, rules if they wish. That's, that's their prerogative. Uh, but that the uh, committee is saying, this is what you need to do uh, for your baseline uh, excellent studies. I'd like to thank you both for your time and for providing such valuable insight into the committee's thoughtful process of updating the scoring manual. Uh, please don't forget, ASM accredited facilities must use version 2.6 of the scoring manual as of July 1. And if you wish more information, visit the ASM website at asm.org slash scoring manual. I'm Dr. Robert Verona, and on behalf of the Sleep Technologists and Respiratory Therapists Education Committee, I'd hope uh, and expect that you found this information to be very helpful. Thank you to Drs. Verona, Quan, and Barry for taking time to highlight some of the recent changes to the AASM scoring manual. And thank you for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe for your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well. <laughs>